Hello and welcome to another episode, part three of three of Word of Wisdom. I'm Alan. And I'm Katie. And we're married. Well, excuse me. That sounded like you were... It's a, it was a matter-of-fact statement. We're married. We're married. Deal with it. That's right. Uh, I don't know. How are you doing today, Katie? It's been a good day? Been a good day today? It's been good. I've been super emotional, but... Oh, schmoopy. We'll get into that Will another we? time. Not now? All right. No, not now. Let's bring it to lighter topics like Word of Wisdom and Getting Into Heaven. How's that? <laughs> Before we talk about that, sure. uh, we wanted to mention that we're, that our workshop on a tightrope, our pre-registration closes Thursday, June 11th, and then it'll be regular registration. The bonus in signing up early is that you get $30 off and you also get the bonus uh, Flourish Masterclass, Powerful Ways to Grow in Sex and Intimacy. I'm so happy and delighted to know that half of our spots have been filled. Yep. And anyone else that wants to take advantage of that early, we would love to have you. Otherwise, we will open up to a regular registration after the deadline hits. That's right. So if you'd like to join the pre-registration by... June 11th, please go to Eventbrite and search for Workshop on a Tightrope. You'll find it there. And also, this is a big news flash. You can use your HSA for this. What? I know. How do they do it? In fact... This is actually new to me. <laughs> I'm not email playing. us, email us, or message us. Someone asked if they could use their HSA card, and we did find out that because it is um, like a group therapy, we can run it through Symmetry Solutions, which is Natasha Helfer Parker's group, and you can use your HSA card. So if you have money on your HSA and you would like to use it for mental health and sign up for this course, you can do it. You just need to contact us, and we can give you a way to do that so that's a big deal we have money on our hsa maybe we should sign up maybe we should all right let's do it i think maybe we have a discount code for us that's right (laughs) we're excited to get into this episode uh episode three of three of the word of wisdom and we have joining with us who we will introduce here in a moment james ott and katie this has already happened in our timeline (laughs) so how do you feel it went I felt like he was super intelligent, had a lot of really good things to say. He became very prepared. I want to warn our listeners, especially our um, ABMs, our active believing members, that this this delves into uh, a few history things. We're not, we don't get any into any truth claims, just where the word of wisdom uh, came from, and then a little bit... Uh, a little few stories, I guess you could say, of of that in the early church years and then when things shifted and changed. And then we talk about addiction. Yeah, I think it's a, an important conversation to have. And I thought that James did a really good job with both aspects of that. He's an addiction specialist, so it, it's very helpful to have. And that's why we wanted to end with it. Uh, having someone that is specializes in this field. So it was very helpful. Yeah, I thought it was very helpful, and it was a pretty good open conversation um, that both Alan and I asked lots of questions for both the believing spouse as well as for those who are trying to negotiate how to how to navigate their 
feelings about wanting to try alcohol or whatever else it might be. That's right. A lot of times it comes back to the alcohol conversation. (laughs) It does. I know. I think that's the most common, but there's a good reason why. And we talk about that with James and he gives some very good information and advice. And as we kick it over to the James Ott interview, I have to personally apologize to everybody listening, including Katie. I messed up on the audio, so I did not, on the Zoom meeting that we recorded with him, I did not have the correct microphone selected, so Katie and I sound a little bit distant in the recording. Please forgive us. And now let's turn it over to the interview with James. Now we are joined by James Ott, who we're really excited to have on the, on the, on the program. You know, when we talked about having a discussion on the Word of Wisdom, we knew that just the two of us, Katie, we weren't going to be able to do it alone. No, we won't. No, 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 no. So I actually asked Natasha Helper Parker who she suggested that we talk to, to help us with this episode. And she um, suggested James and Alan, why don't you go ahead and, and talk him up a bit. Let's read his bio. Let's do it. Uh, so James completed his master of social work degree from New Mexico state university and has had his clinical licensure since 2000. He's a therapist and the, and at, or excuse me, he's a, he is a therapist at and the executive director of Red Willow Counseling and Recovery, an agency that provides outpatient mental health and addiction treatment. James has had a full-time a private practice since 2010, providing individual and family therapy and also supervising other clinicians in his practice. He believes in a client-centered approach, identifying strengths to overcome places where a person can become stuck. He is proficient in cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, EMDR, which I'm going to have to ask him what that means, and solution-focused therapy. His specialty is to work with treatment-resistant individuals and their families. James, thank you very much, and welcome to Marriage on a Tightrope. Thank you very much, uh, Alan and Katie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. All right, so what's EMDR mean? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, EMDR is eye movement desensitivity reprocessing. So it's a, yeah, it, it's, it's a specialty training um, where I work with people who have trauma. And in this, in this work, we, part of the work is we actually use a finger or a light and kind of wave it in front of the client's um, face back and forth so that the eyes shift to the left to the right, to the left, to the right hemispheres. And somehow we, we don't really know why, but that shifting between the hemispheres as you're cognitively processing trauma gives, um, you know, great healing. And uh, it, it, it's, it's clinically documented through a lot of research that this actually works well, but it's, it's like voodoo. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Now I'm not sure if EMDR, uh, what, what's of the specialties of which you specialize to be repetitive, uh, what do you feel applies most here in a discussion about the word of wisdom? Well, I, I think that my experience with people and families with addiction um, is really what we're talking about. I, I, and when we talk about addiction, there's a lot of different addictions out there. I, I, I work with a lot of them, but I, I really focus more on substance addiction, um, you know, drugs and substances, alcohol, um, food. and 
not so much food so much, but uh, that is a substance. Sure, yeah. sure. Awesome. Um, I, I have, feel like I have so many questions, but we did come up with an outline. So we'll just follow the outline so we don't like jump all around. Yeah. And you know, one thing I would love to understand as much as you want to share is kind of your familiarity. You're based here in Salt Lake City, so you're familiar with the LDS culture, but just what is your kind of background with um, either LDS clients or working within a LDS kind of theological framework? Uh, fr- yeah, framework. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in Utah. I'm well immersed in the, in the, I almost said Mormon. My goodness, that would have been bad. So, so I'm, I'm well versed in the LDS culture. Um, I, I, I was, you know, I remember myself at one point and, and so like, I, I speak the language. I understand the culture, I think very, very well. Um, and then with my background with addiction and, and especially because of this background and specialty, I've done a, a fair amount of research into how substances uh, has been impact has impacted the LDS culture as well as, you know, the, the history and the mythology associated with all this. So yeah. speaking of, I think that's where we want to I start, think we right? want to, ha- yeah, I think that's where we want to hit on first is a little bit about the history. So for those viewers or listeners that are listening right now, as you know, we don't really go into um, a lot of history on the podcast. That's really not part, that's not the point that we usually try hammering. However, I do feel like for this episode, it would be important to talk a little bit about a brief discussion of the history on the word of wisdom to help us understand and give us a framework from where we go from there, especially with um, James's uh, specialties. So James, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And this, I mean, this in and of itself could be an hour long podcast, right? Sure. Um, So, you know, cut me off. I'll try to hit some, some key highlights, but, and I don't want to, you know, in a sense, try to sway anyone's opinion or make any statements or anything. Really what I want to do is just outlay some of the facts that are known and let listeners make that discovery. For me, uh, the more I've looked at the history and understand, uh, understood, you know, the, the history and the facts of the word of wisdom, um, it, it has made the word of wisdom a lot more gray and less defined. Uh, we, we have, we tend to think, uh, uh, in the Mormon culture as like, here's the word of wisdom and it's very black and white and it's, but it wasn't always this way. So we know that the word of wisdom comes from section 89 of the doctrine and covenants. And this was given to Joseph Smith in 1833. And the piece here that I think is interesting is number one, it was originally given as what's the verbiage is not by commandment or constraint, but rather for a principle and a promise. And you know, over the years, it's, it's, it's held more and more authority, but originally it, it was really just almost a suggestion like, hey, if you do this, then you're going to get these benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the word of wisdom, um, it, it's kind of a hot topic, but since 1833, there has never been any official church p- 
policy, declaration, um, revelation, uh, anything since 1833, since the original. A lot of the ways we practice the word of wisdom now has just developed and in a sense is cultural adaptations to the 1833 policy. Or I should say the 1833 revelation. Right. And I think that that's important for us to note because, you know, I mean, for example, let's take the history of eating meat. In the revelation, it says, you know, meat is to be used sparingly in times of famine and winter. And in fact, it pleases God when we only use it sparingly or in times of famine and winter. And over the years, you know, eating meat has um, kind of come and gone. Brigham Young was a very adamant proponent of a very low meat consumption. And a lot of the prophets, you know, through Lorenzo Snow and through uh, Heber J. Grant, um, even there, uh, it, there's a history of uh, an apostle, George Teasdale. Again, this was like in the late 1800s, early 1900s that this apostle believed that eating pork was worse than drinking coffee and tea. Hmm. So we have this adaptation or this following of, of meat eating in the early days of the church. And now, you know, look at where we are today. You know, we're, we're a state that consumes large amounts of meat per capita. So, you know, that, that's a really good uh, illustration of, of how, this uh, revelation has kind of adapted and twisted and turned and, and people kind of come up with their own interpretations of it. Right. And that's that, like you said, it's important to kind of understand the, the facts of that. Obviously everyone listening here knows where my stance is on the true claims of the church, but this is not a true claim conversation. No. This is just a, how it's been practiced, how it's been adhered to and lived over, over the course of the history of the church. Yes. Very much so. And, and we can dive also into, you know, the, the other parts of the word of wisdom, um, the strong drinks, and uh, strong drinks interpreted as, as more liquor, whiskeys, um, you know, stronger spirits. And most of the prophets actually have had a pretty firm stance about uh, not using strong drinks, although uh, one prophet, I believe it was uh, George Albert Smith, used to drink brandy, um, you know, for medicinal purposes. And, and there's other noted uh, apostles that, that have used uh, liquor before in, in moderation. Um, the Word of Wisdom also talks about that uh, herbs, fruits, grains, and mild drinks made with barley are actually good for man. And what's a mild drink make with, made with barley? That's beer, beer. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so historically speaking, many, you know, church leaders, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, um, Lorenzo Snow, uh, these, these church leaders and, you know, other apostles, they didn't believe beer was a, a big issue. Um, it really started to be an issue when uh, in, in 1920s, when um, the prohibition came around and then after prohibition was repealed, the church started taking a, a firm stance on the use of alcohol, including beer. 
Um, it was right around that time that that the word of wisdom was added to the temple recommend questions, correct? Do you have that in front of you? you know? Yeah, it was actually added in 1902, but it really wasn't enforced until 1921. Gotcha. And and really, and until there, there's some, there's a, a reference to around even 1950 that uh, the, the the church administration was like, you know, just don't let people that are drunk into the temple, and you know that they, they kind of it was it was almost grandfathered in, you know, the younger generation was held to a higher standard than the older generation, and you know, so in the 1950s it started to be really, really strongly enforced. Right. Anything on so, that? Yeah, keep, keep going as far as the, any of the other historical points you wanted to bring up. Yeah, I mean, um, kind of the meat and the, and the alcohol are kind of the stronger um, historical uh, points of the, of, the, of the word of wisdom. Um, and, and again, I, I think that this just kind of has, you know, evolved over time and in a sense become more and more adhered to, more and more strict. But you know, there's a lot of uh, speculation nowadays. There's a lot of like, you know, we shouldn't drink Coke and we shouldn't, you know, participate in certain other substances. And and, and again, really, th- this is just speculation. There is no official church viewpoint on these subjects. Um, so I, I think we got, got to be really careful about what is official and what is not. Right. Yeah. And the, I think the list can be very wide because, um, and long because, I mean, we could get into prescription drugs versus. Oh, we'll get it there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we can get into prescription drugs. We can get into, you know, monsters. We can get into sugar. We can, I mean, there's just so many yes. things yes. on that list. And, um, and so. I, I feel like sometimes the thinking about all of it is, is a little bit daunting because there, there's a lot of language that we just don't have any direction for, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, hot, hot drinks is one that, that we haven't quite brought up yet. What do you yes. think about that term, hot drinks? How was that interpreted originally? Well, both Hiram Smith and Joseph Smith did afterwards say that hot drinks referred to coffee and tea. So again, while that's not an, you know, in a sense, it's not an official revelation. They didn't say thus saith the Lord or whatever, but, but they implied like, this is what the Lord meant during this time. Mm-hmm. I've seen some quotes that, that lump like a hot cocoa in there from the early days as well. Is that something that you've seen or am I, is that- I, I haven't seen that. Um, and, and, and I mean, the research I've done, you know, there's there's a lot of these apostles that have made little teeny statements um, that you know, and some of them can be again. George Teasdale, pork is worse than coffee and tea. You know, was it prophetic or was it his opinion? Right. Yeah. So how did um, did correlation play a part of this? Because now you get into the early 1970s and you have fewer instances of rogue apostles <laughs> kind of <laughs> proclaiming their own, their own uh, agenda or not agenda is not the right word. Opinion. Some negative opinion or their own mm-hmm. thoughts on it. But did correlation have any bearing on the word of wisdom in your, in your mind or knowledge? I, I, I think the, the most, the biggest impact to the word of wisdom was prohibition. And, and again, over, time since the 1920s the 1950s 
there's just been a, a stronger emphasis, more and more adherence to these principles, except the meat one. The meat's kind of fallen by the wayside for some reason. And, um, you know, and then we start to get into a lot more speculation with, you know, Coca-Cola and, you know, processed foods that, oh, oh, I was thinking another one was John Widstow and, and he actually said refined fire, I'm sorry, refined flour is actually against the word of wisdom. It's not a, it's not a pure grain. It's been refined and, and, you know, the, the, the goodness has, was taken out. So here's again, another, you know, personal belief. Well, and I mean, to be fair to brother Witso, <laughs> uh, I mean, refined flour is pretty awful for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those, those awesome carbs that we all love. Mm, like yes. Not, and not a lot of nutrition, but oh, oh. again, was he being prophetic and why aren't we following it or why, do, why do we follow the, why do some people follow the Coke ban or the Mountain Dew ban? I'll drink Coke, but not Mountain Dew because it has 20 more, you know, milligrams of caffeine or whatever it is. So, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, when we talk about this subject, it's this, I would call this a tender for a lot of couples. This is a really um, hard thing to talk about because there's a lot of preconceived notions about if you go, you know, if, if you take one sip, then you're going down that, that bad path. Um, I don't drink because I've got an alcoholic family. I don't, or, or you shouldn't, you know, one, you, it's a slippery slope. That's another um, term that we hear quite often. So it can be really hard for couples to navigate some of these, um, some of these hard tenders because they have these preconceived notions. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what do you say to someone who, who comes into this um, having those preconceived notions and what have you heard? You know, I, I think that this is a very difficult issue um, because there is such a hard line. There is a lot of fears associated with this. There's a lot of um, preconceived notions and, and mythologies about that. The, the one drink a mythology, after, you know, you know, my cousin's best friend's neighbor had one beer and, and they became an alcoholic. It's like, um, the, it's like the mom who has a story for every, every bad thing that could happen. They have an example for it, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we really need to, you know, kind of go back to the facts and what the research shows. What we know is that addiction, um, substance addiction, is both, you know, genetic and environmental. And we're looking at about 50-50. Some studies say 60-40 or 40-60, but, you know, 50-50. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it can be highly genetic and sometimes it can be highly biological. But that's where addiction comes from, is both the genetic and the, and the um, environmental. Did I say genetic and biological? I, I, I meant genetic and environmental, environmental. you know, the, the, the biology and, and, the, and the living environment, the, what you were growing up with. So with, uh, so with this comes like the, those ideas of just one drink. Um, also, 
with the our culture, we see drinking and smoking and using drugs as a moral issue. Like these are bad people because they smoke cigarettes. These are bad people because they're drinking. And we, we really need to take the morality out of that. Now, do people with addiction make some bad choices and in a sense some, some choices they wouldn't normally make if they were sober or choices that contradict the moral value? Absolutely. But that also occurs in a lot of different situations. I mean, people commit murder for love. You know, should we say love is bad because I can get into a jealous rage and commit a murder? We were pretty accept, well, not in a sense accepting, but we don't, we don't demonize and demoralize people that are in love. So um, we need to not look at this as a moral issue. Um, another thing that I see a lot in our society is, and, and you named it, Katie, is the prescription drug abuse that we have um, here in Utah. And time and time again, a, a familiar story is uh, a person um, that never would touch a drop of alcohol or coffee or anything, but is either abusing prescription drugs, and these are mood-altering prescription drugs, most of the time anti-anxiety. This would be, you know, Xanax and Ativan and Clonopin and, and sleep-enhancing, you know, uh, Ambien, Lunesta. Um, is either they're abusing those or they're just using it as prescribed, but they have been working and, and while they may be working with a doctor and using them as prescribed, they are prescribed to intoxicating levels. They're prescribed to levels that, you know, you or me, if we took it would be, you know, in, in high risk, high, high risk and high danger. So part of, part of that problem. And that, and that kind of goes back to a larger issue is how very untrained many doctors are, um, with addiction. And we're seeing a lot of that with the opioid epidemic that we've seen um, recently. And, and they're, you know, historically doctors receive two weeks of addiction, um, addiction uh, schooling, addiction medicine schooling in their four years of med school. So for two weeks, they, they get a little brief rundown of here's some addictive substances and this is what you do but it's very glossed over. And so, you know, not to these doctors' faults, they just aren't, they just have not been equipped to, to, to um, prudent prescribing um, ways. And now that's getting better. Doctors are becoming more and more informed, but um, it's still pretty rampant that uh, people are using high levels of, prescription medication that alter their mood and whether they're using it as prescribed or abusing it. So that's all. So that's another issue here in our community. I think as LDS people, okay, we'll talk about me. For me, who's someone who was a rule follower to the T, I like to know exactly what I can and can't do. Okay. That's just my personality. So the fact that prescription drugs isn't on a list of things that I shouldn't be doing, I think, oh, well, I can take those without a problem. I think, I think, yeah, I think that a lot of um, church members, I don't want to say get away with, but I think that they try to rationalize their 
in their approach of not, you know, drinking alcohol, but um, drinking ungodly amounts of monsters a day, <laughs> um, you know, because it's not a word of wisdom. It's not on the list. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that that's, that's the wrong thinking. Obviously I've, I've come to realize that, um, that like you said, you take the, the morality out, out of it. And, um, we look at maybe like a bigger picture. Is this going to help me, you know, whatever I'm doing, is this going to make me healthier, happier, whatever you're using it for? Yes. And, and who doesn't want a rule book to get into heaven? <laughs> if I've got the checklist and if I follow this checklist, then I'm in the celestial kingdom right there, you know? For sure. Yeah. But, you know, one of my, in, in my research, one of my favorite stories here is Joseph Smith given a, you know, Bible pounding, hellfire and damnation thumping a sermon on the word of wisdom and then getting in his wagon and lighting up a cigar and driving up and down the streets of Nauvoo. And people wonder, why would he do that? Why would he openly, you know, contradict himself? And I believe the message he was giving here is that he was trying to tell people like, hey, hey, people, here's the information. You need to figure this out. Don't just follow me. Like, I'm, don't follow me to get into heaven you need to figure this out and have that connection with God and know what's right or wrong. And, and that, that, that correlates to his, his famous statement about, you know, we teach the, the people correct principles and let them govern themselves. And, you know, going back further, what was Jesus's plan was free agency. And what was Satan's plan was, I'm going to tell you all the rules you have to follow and make you follow them. Sure. And, and so there's, I think human nature, we want to be told what to do and what's, you know, if this is right, this is wrong, this is what we do for this result. And in reality, you know, true concepts of spirituality is about having the connection with God and knowing what, what we need to do for our own selves. So I hear what you're saying. And I think to, you know, all this is, is great. And I love that idea of like, you choose for yourself, you decide for yourself. Uh, what is best for you. And then I look at the current state of today. That doesn't really fly when you're going in to get a temple recommend to see your daughter get married. Right. I mean, the question of, do you, do you obey the word of wisdom? I don't know if that's the exact way uh, that it's, that it's stated in theory, you should be able to just say yes or no. But in reality, a lot of times that's not where the questioning stops. I, I don't know if I'm, eliciting or soliciting for you to respond to that. I, I just think it, it gets into this messy area where, where it, it does feel pretty legalistic today. Yeah. But, but really that, that question, do you obey the word of wisdom? That, that doesn't say, do you drink coffee? Do you smoke? Do you take, use monster drinks? You know, it, it, it it's, it says, do you obey the word of wisdom? It, it implores us to study the word of wisdom, to pray about it, to receive guidance on what that word of wisdom means for us. And then we get to decide, you know, whether or not we're obeying it. 
And, you know, case in point, like, gosh, I eat a lot of meat. I guess I don't obey the word of wisdom. Or you know what? I have a beer a couple of days a week, but I'm eating a drink made with barley, and I guess I do. Now, I'm not in any ways trying to advocate slippery, you know, sliding around the word of wisdom here. The point I'm trying to make here is, is it's our spiritual responsibility to ponder and wrestle with this and, and receive guidance through prayer. And then we make those decisions and then we can tell the bishop or the stake president, yes, I do obey the word of wisdom or no upon reflection. I don't. And many of the temple questions are listed that way. It's up to us. Right. I actually really like that. It's, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I think the other challenge that I see or feel at church is going back to Joseph Smith, thinking about, you know, the famous story when he was, when he was with the doctor and they were cutting out of his leg and he wouldn't drink the alcohol. Yes. Like that story is the one that's held up as this is the example. If, if he can do it, so can you, Right. Yeah, in the in in the sense of drinking, but also none of us like I as a woman don't reject an epidural when I have a baby. Yeah, right. You know, and and that's is that in sense similar to that? And well, so, yeah, there, it's just it's hard when you hear some of these stories come across because I feel like there's just so much gray in there. Well, again, here's the mythology because. While we tell that story, we don't tell the story of documented sightings of Joseph Smith on the streets of Nauvoo drunk. We don't tell the story of Joseph Smith who ran a tavern and that the brethren actually admonished him for selling whiskey, um, you know, as, as part of his, his hotel and, and um, bar. And, you know, they're like, hey, Brother Joseph, like, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. So, like, yes, I, I, I do believe that story is true. He did, like, you know, deny the brandy or whatever it was for the operation, but he was not a teetotaler. Right, right. And I think that's what it's important for people to understand here is that we're trying to give you another perspective of the word of wisdom when we're yes. going to talk about this. I think the next section that we wanted to get into is kind of the severities of following the word of wisdom and the benefits thereof. So, you know, starting with you were reading in DNC 89 or even thinking about how it's commonly practiced today. That's more relevant to today. What are the benefits of living that type of, of lifestyle? What are the benefits of following the word of wisdom? Yeah. Well, let's start with the, with DNC 89 here. Um, if you follow the word of wisdom, you're going to receive health in your navel. Well, I'll read it. They shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary and shall walk and not faint. And then here's, so here's all these health benefits. And then you get the, the big one here. I, the Lord, given to them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass them by as the children of Israel and not slay them. I mean, that's a pretty awesome promise, you know? So, so there's, in a sense, these promised uh, blessings by adhering the word of wisdom. And then there's lots of, of documented benefits. And um, there's so many of these, there, you know, that 
people who abstain from these substances, uh, also meat and sugar, though, by the way, um, lots of health benefits. Um, but there's also benefits of people who, who use these substances in moderation. You know, you, we, we've heard the, the famous study of a glass of red wine every day, and, and there's a lot of health benefits there, cholesterol levels and that. Um, even there's some, um, I, I was reading a study the other day about a daily use of coffee actually can, can be helpful, you know, again, in moderation, a cup of coffee a day. I, I think it was helpful to various hormones and things like that. So I think the point here, though, is when we use these substances in excess. Um, so, so, so number one, what's your spiritual belief on this? And what do you want to follow spiritually? And number two, what's your health belief on this? And there is a lot of benefit that can be used for, for some moderation in use. Um, that doesn't include cocaine in moderation, by the way. Um, you know, this is very specific substances. But we do know that excessive use of these substances um, can be very damaging to our health. But again, excessive use to a lot of things, to, you know, flour and sugar and, and milk products and, and other things can be very, very unhealthy for us. What about, um, we've touched on one of the recent episodes, but what about your understanding of um, medical marijuana, or not even medical marijuana, but recreational marijuana, uh, and then even down into, you know, psilocybin and some of those psychedelics? You mentioned cocaine. I mean, that's a pretty easy example of us to say, yeah, uh, there's not a moderate amount of cocaine you should be consuming, or heroin, or meth. Yeah, (laughs) yes. But from a, from a clinician, and again, I think it's important for the, for our listeners to, to understand, we're not trying to get to this place where it's, where we're justifying the use of this or that. Um, it's really trying to lean on some expertise within the clinical field of what these substances mean. So what about those? those yeah. So there's a big movement here over the use of psychedelics, um, low-dose ketamine has been shown to have very good effect for people with a treatment-resistant depression. Um, marijuana, whether that's THC or the CBD or both, uh, has been shown to have, you know, good, good effect for chronic pain issues or some other issues. Now, my belief here, and, and I want to specify again, this is my belief, we are all physiologically a little different, you know, I might be able to tolerate sugar in different levels than you, you know, in the same sense, you might be able to tolerate alcohol or THC or psilocybin in different levels than me. You know, there's some people that can party like a rock star and use all sorts of substances in crazy amounts and, you know, with, with very little deleterious effects and other people, you know, again, they, they use, um, substances in, in a marginal manner and they get addicted. So I, I want to put out there this notion of, of subtle physiological differences and that we, um, our body metabolizes substances differently and that, that should be noted. Now, is there some, some health benefits to these kind of 
substances on the edge, again, THC and CBD and psilocybin and ketamine. And yes, absolutely. And yes, I strongly agree that people can take these and use them as excuses to use them, you know, excessively. And, and maybe this, what we might want to do is dip into kind of the, the idea of what is addiction. Yeah. Um, That's a great, great next place to go. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, here we go, like, um, I'm using such an XYZ substance and is it a problem? Is it not? Because there is this idea that unless we're sleeping under the viaduct, um, you know, we can be using substances. And, and there's a lot of CEOs or, you know, professionals um, who competently perform their jobs who have an, a substance abuse issue. So, okay, let me ask a question. Like, what is that line? When does it become an addiction? Like, is there a... Yeah. criteria that you go through to yeah. identify something like that. So uh, this is not a light switch. This is not offer on. I, I, I want, I would like people to think about addiction as a progressive disease. So we go from abstinence to experimentation, to recreational use, to use, misuse, abuse, and dependence. Mm. So we look at, at, at this as more of a, a, of a spectrum, a, a, again, a progression. And again, this is going to vary according to our physiology. You know, 18 beers to me might look a whole lot different than 18 beers to you. So, so there's that spectrum. Now, there is some definitions. Uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has this super long, um, you know, two, three page paragraph on what addiction is. There's the, the diagnostic and statistical manual that we use as, as our Bible for diagnosing people. There's all these criteria, um, on, on when does a person have an addiction or an alcohol problem. But one of my favorites is, uh, a statement by John Bradshaw and he says addiction is a path I'm sorry a pathological relationship to any mood altering experience that has life damaging consequences so again a pathological relationship to any mood altering experience that can be substances it can be food it can be sex and relationships and money and gambling and any mood altering experience that has life damaging consequences. So when we, when we look at our use of any, again, mood altering experience, does it meet this criteria? Are we pathologically related to it? Is it damaging our life? And, um, you know, from this, there's also some typical, you know, there's some lists out there of physical and emotional symptoms of addiction. And um, would that be helpful to, to dip into at this time? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So, um, you know, physical symptoms of addiction are, you know, people uh, has physical changes. Uh, they look disheveled. They have poor hygiene. 
They look unhealthy, significant weight loss or gain. Um, they're missing school or work. They're isolating. They're no longer involved in, in activities that they used to do. Um, money disappears a lot. There's risk-taking behavior. Um, there, there's, there seems to be, you know, this life of uh, chaos, basically. Life becomes more and more unmanageable. People are unable to manage stress as they used to. Um, there can be sudden or extreme mood swings. Um, people can be lethargic. People stop having daily structure. Um, depression, anxiety, shame, worthlessness, dishonesty. So the, the difficult thing about addiction is it can, you know, again, it's progressive and it can be subtle and it can be hidden. And so, and there tends to always be some plausible excuse about why this is happening, what's going on, what happened to this money, and what happened to this, and and why are you acting this way? And well, let me t- let me explain. And and those are because addiction is so shame based. A lot of spouses they don't detect that there's a problem. They just think there's just something kind of off. There's just something not right here. So that's what I see in a lot of the addiction work I do with couples and families. So looking at this as it relates to the word of wisdom, I can just see, uh, you know, a believing spouse that really buys in, not buys in, that's the wrong way of saying it, that really believes in the, the divine source of the word of wisdom. Here's what you're saying about addiction. All of those negative things that you just mentioned of, you know, the symptoms of, 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 um, of, of addiction and, and other personality traits. And I would, I just think so many say, why in the world would you even want to tempt? It was just, why would you move on that scale at all away from abstinence? Why would you ever try that, that beer knowing that it could lead to a significant addiction and um, you could kill somebody in a car. And if you never drink it, you're never going to have that problem. What would you respond in that, in that <laughs> regard? I mean, you know, I, I know that there's listeners out there thinking that. I'm just like, look at all of the negatives. Why in the world would you ask, why, do you, why would you want to do this? I think I can answer that. You can answer that? I, I yes, think, go for I, it. I think that, um, I mean, Alan, you don't, you don't necessarily hold that spiritual feeling. You don't feel like it's divine or that's, that wisdom is right for you anymore even though I still hold that for me. So um, I think that some of the fear is taken out of it for you and you're curious. Maybe spiritually, but I hear what James just said, right? Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm obviously not voicing my, what I actually feel because I drink a cup of coffee every day. I'm not drinking alcohol at the moment because of this challenge I'm doing, but anyway, um, and, and, but, but I do know it's like, okay, take all the spiritual stuff out of it. We're, we're talking to a clinician here that is saying, look at all of these things that can happen with addiction. So why in the world, non-believing spouse take away the, I don't care about the spiritual. Why would, I think this, this for me highlights a lot of the fears that a spouse that still believes can have. They're not going to be the ones toying with this addiction scale. So, but on a smaller scale, you could say, say the same thing about sugar. I mean, we, 
we go to swig constantly and get a cookie and a drink every other day, you know, on a very small scale, why wouldn't we stop that if we knew it was bad and it was causing us to gain weight? You're onto something. I like that. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts, James? I, I think there's many behaviors that have inherent risks and that, you know, in, in the LDS community, we see addiction as one of the, or we see substance use as like, why would you ever risk that? But yeah, in that same vein, eating sugar, driving a car, driving a car is risky, you know, or people that go running. I can't run anymore because my knees hurt. It damages my knees. Well, why did I run all those years when it was damaging my knees? You know, because I enjoyed it. And this is the other thing about the use is this is not like sticking your hand in a fire or hitting your thumb with a hammer. There's no benefits to doing that. Now, alcohol, there are benefits. There are, it feels good. So, you come home from a hard day of work and you have a beer, it feels good. There's the reward. And our, you know, we haven't really gone into the brain chemistry of this, but our brain is designed to survive and, and how, it's, how it has kept us alive for millions of years is that it has pursued pleasure and avoided pain. And this, you know, drinking a beer you know, pumps high levels of dopamine into your brain and it feels good. It is, is, it's rewarding. It's, it's part of the reward system. It amplifies the reward system and we tend to go back to things that feel good to us. So James, tell us, I'm thinking of a lot of couples that are in our, in our situation right now and they have, you know, they may have a spouse who wants to dabble in it, right? I mean, coming from a Mormon background where you know nothing, nothing about drugs, alcohol, tobacco, other than to stay away from it, what, how, what would you say, what would advice would you give to anyone who decides that they want to try? Because, I mean, we've heard great stories and we've heard bad stories. We, we have a, a, couple, a couple friends that they decided that they were both out and they wanted to try drinking. They went and bought a ton of alcohol and for a weekend locked themselves in a, in an Airbnb. And then after, after a couple of drinks decided they hated it and spent the night throwing up. So could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how do you educate yourself on something you know nothing about? Yeah. And that's great aversion therapy, by the way. <laughs> so. <laughs> you drink large amounts of alcohol and then throw up like you are not going to go back to that. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like that kid that was caught smoking and his parents make him eat a pack of cigarettes <laughs> <laughs> or smoke the whole pack. Yes. Smoke the whole thing. You get sick. Never want to do it again. <laughs> well, so, so, and this is again, part of the difficulty with our culture is number one, we don't have any healthy role models. We don't have role models of somebody that like, has a drink at the end of the evening or there's a party and, uh, you know, a couple of beers are, are consumed and that's it. And number two, this is such a moral issue and guilt plays such a huge factor that it's like, well, if I'm going to drink, I'm going to, I'm going to drink. 
And I'm just not going to say, oh, I'm going to try one beer. It's like, oh, I feel so guilty. I'm going to have five. And then, our, you know, your body isn't used to that level of alcohol and you don't have knowledge of what your use is. And so you, it ends up being a, a horrible experience. And so um, if people wanted to experiment, number one, I would stay with legal drugs, which basically gives out al- means alcohol. Um, I would have somebody with you, somebody that kind of just hang out, make sure you're doing okay. Whether that person is a responsible drinker or stay sober, you just have someone with you and, and, and just try moderation, just have one and see what that experiment is like. Now, as far as, you know, other drug use, you know, I, I, I really wouldn't recommend that. Um, especially, you know, we, we can get, we can really go down a dark road there. Yeah. Stay with the legal stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. And thinking back to our experience, you know, we did that and we talked about it last episode so we don't have to, but the first few experiences I had drinking, I was with Katie and it was one drink and it was, you know, let's see what this is like. There's no, there's no need to, dive into to drinking four five six beers all at one time uh just kind of try it out and then and look we're not saying everyone listening should be trying this it's if you've made the decision if you've talked to your spouse you guys have gotten to a place where um the spouse that is transitioning or has changed has said i'm going to i'm i've decided i'm going to try this Uh, these are some of the the tips that to keep in mind. I just want to make it, other than we want to make it very clear. We're not saying this is a, this is something everyone should be trying. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. Cause I mean, I, I still find value in the word of wisdom. And so that's not something I'm going to, I'm going to do for, for me. But um, the other question I had, let, let me, let me interrupt real quick though, because I'm realizing that some of our listeners might be in States where marijuana is legal too. Okay. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of think that I think that the same rules apply, you know, moderation, um, make sure you're safe and, and, um, you know, again, stay legal. Um, I, I also think it's important to educate yourself. Uh, a lot of people, um, talk about marijuana as like, you know, it's, it's, it's safer than alcohol and, and, these sorts of, of arguments. Um, and you're right. Like alcohol is by far the most dangerous drug out there. There's more people addicted to alcohol than any other substance. There are more people die from alcohol than any other substance. And we often forget this, you know, again, we're looking at the opioid epidemic and all this, Well, more people die from alcohol by far than, than opioids. So, um, you know, in, in that same sense, you know, marijuana is a safer drug, but we are, we have hybridized marijuana to contain five to 10 times the amount of THC than what it was in the seventies. It's, it's more natural form. So, you know, this is like the Arnold Schwarzenegger marijuana now, as opposed (laughs) to, you know, a a normal human being. Richard Simmons marijuana. Yes. Richard Simmons. (laughs) Yes. Um, and, And so with those high levels, we're seeing um, psychosis and, and mood a disruption that we have never seen before. 
And also with marijuana that, that doesn't happen with alcohol is that um, when you use it, I mean, we talk about brain development and your brain doesn't really fully form till you're, you know, early to mid twenties. So marijuana has a dramatic impact on the brain in formation that um, decreases or stops executive functioning skills learning. And also even the structural, we call it the myelinization of the neurons. So like the, the insulation around the electrical cords of the brain of each neuron of the brain is stunted. And so it, it, it's, it has profound developmental brain effects if used, you know, in, in your teens or early twenties. So, you know, do your research, see, you know, where are you in life? How old are you? What kind of impact are these substances going to have on you? Um, on a short and long-term basis. Uh, that's the other warning I would give. Really good information. Yeah, that's Kevin. really good. Okay, so um, this kind of goes along with that. I'm thinking about a lot of our listeners have kids, and one of our biggest issues is keeping things like alcohol in the house. That's a big, that's a big hot topic, um, a hot-button issue, I would say. Anytime, any type of substances, um, most... A lot of people on my side, the, the active believing side, really don't want any of those substances in the home. Um, and that's, and I mean, it's really for, to try to keep out of the hands of kids, if you have teenagers in the home, all of those things. So um, do you have any ideas as far as that goes, um, whether that's positive, negative, if you would suggest, you know, putting it in a locked cabinet, if they do want to have it, what, what would be your suggestion? So, yeah, I think this is a negotiation for couples. And um, what we do know is the research shows that parents that uh, are openly drunk um, in front of their kids, uh, not so much drinking, but are openly drunk. Parents that are permissive uh, encourage their children to drink uh, their teenager wants to have a party. Well, mom and dad, if I, I'm going to go to this party and um, I'm going to go drink. And um, so maybe you should have the party here if you want it to be safe. And so mom and dad feels blackmailed and like, Oh, uh, let's have a party. So I can watch over and make sure everybody's safe. Like those attitudes that it's, it's an enabling attitude and it's really unhealthy and it's likely to increase the, the likelihood of the children having, um, addiction later on in life. Uh, as far as whether or not alcohol in the home can cause any addiction, I actually don't know of any studies. There, there may or may not be, but I haven't, I can't recall reading any studies about that, if it's, if it's good or bad, but really it's a negotiation. And if one spouse is like, I really don't want it in the house, okay, well, then I'm not going to buy it. Uh, I won't bring it home or I'll only buy it when we have a special occasion or, you know, whatever the negotiation is. I have a special fridge that's locked downstairs, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and speaking to what you just said about um, kids growing up in where their parents are openly drunk. Um, I think that a lot of listeners have had experiences where, 
um, they have trauma from either family members, um, usually it's family members um, that were alcoholics themselves or, you know, siblings who maybe abused substances. And um, they bring that to the table in their marriage. And that's a really um, hard thing for them to get over in their if they have a spouse wanting to go down that road and try alcohol where they have trauma. So can you speak to someone, a family member, maybe um, a spouse that's dealing with, with their own trauma background and um, how do you work through some of those? So yes, having, the, having parents that openly use drugs or alcohol and openly just intoxicated can be a very traumatizing experience, um, especially those sorts of environments can involve, you know, lot, you know, huge parties and the kids are just kind of off in the corner. Um, but also, I mean, this just is, is common relationship therapy because our childhoods impact our relationships. So whether that was trauma over substances or sexual trauma, or whether that was religious trauma or, or other, you know, hundreds of different factors. We all bring that into the relationship. And this is part of negotiation and understanding and compromising. So that, I mean, it's kind of a bigger issue in a sense, but it's, it's basically like, okay, I bring this to the relationship. You bring that to the relationship. Let's put it together and let's figure out what we need to do with it. Yeah. And, and two, I mean, I'll just speak from experience, you know, two people that enter the marriage feeling like they're on the same page and then one has a faith transition and then decides that whatever was compromised or that they were on the same page about at the beginning gets changed. Um, I think that that's where the trauma can come up again because they feel like, oh no, wait, hey, <laughs> you're changing, you're changing the contract here and I'm not okay with that, right? Yes, yes, very much so. And there can be a, a large betrayal here. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's part of the, the difficulty in, in, you know, couples that deal with a faith transition is the betrayal. This isn't what I signed up for. Yeah, and, and I mean, it goes back to what you're talking about, um, addiction, especially like the fear of telling someone, you know, where you are. That can happen in the own, in, in marriage. We see a lot of couples that don't tell their spouse that they've gone out and they've already been drinking with friends because yes. of the fear that um, they will get from the spouse, right? From that yes. reaction. Yeah. And, and, and this is also doubly so because addiction um, is really based in shame. And so a person who's using substances, I mean, and again, this is a spectrum. This is a progression. So maybe they, they're using it maybe a little bit excessively. Their spouse may not have any idea because, number one, they're going to hide it because of the religion issue. And number two, they're going to hide it because of the addiction issue, and they're shamed for it. So really, you know, part of the secret here, and I, I think this applies to all aspects of relationships, is to provide a safe space in your relationship. This is, you can come to me and we can talk about whatever we need to talk about. I'm not going to overreact. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to respond because of my own fears and my, my anxieties. I want to create this safe space where we can talk things through. 
that's where we all want to be in our relationships. I love that. That's a great, that's probably a great place to, as we're here hitting the, the hour point, I want to make sure James, before we cut you off, what, I mean, if you're looking at your notes or there's something burning a hole in your head and, and it's like, Oh, I didn't talk about this. Like what, what, what else do you have? <laughs> you know, I, I would finish off with that, the providing the safe space in, in the relationships. I, we, we aren't taught on how to approach these things. We're, we're not taught how to approach difficult issues. I, I had some really good friends of mine. Well, I have some really good friends of mine, but they had an infant daughter at six months old died. And he eventually went back to work. Uh, you know, she stayed at home, but he said, you know, he talked to me a little bit later about that experience. And he said, it was the weirdest thing. People would come in and they didn't know what to say. And they would just stand there or they would just ignore things. Um, they would just pretend nothing had happened, that I hadn't been gone for, you know, I don't know, what, what was it, two or four weeks that he was gone from work? Or He's like, people just respond awkwardly. And he's like, it just feels so alone and isolating because no one says anything. No one has approached this. And he, and he said, I just wanted someone just to say, hey, I'm really sorry for your loss. Or someone to just say, I don't even know what to say here. I've never experienced this, but if you need something, I'm here to talk. And so I'm a huge believer, like, again, we're not taught how to, how to approach these issues. So even just saying, hey, what can I do? Hey, I'm sorry, or hey, I really want to talk about this, or hey, I have, I, I have a concern and I don't even know how to bring this up, or I don't even know what to say. Like this is part of that um, having learning to have difficult conversations in our relationships and relationships, meaning our spouses, our significant others, or with friends or whoever, just don't avoid the difficult conversations and just speak up. Very good advice. Very, Very good, good advice. advice. Gosh, James, if there is someone out there listening who would like to meet with you or talk to you or is interested in counseling, how can they find you? Yeah, um, probably the easiest is just through my website. Uh, it's redwillowcounseling.com. Awesome. Willow as in the Val Kilmer late 80s. <laughs> that's, that's true. Well, Willow. Sure everybody knows Red Willow. Okay, university. Sorry, redwillowcounseling.com. Red redwillowcounseling.com. Wonderful. And we'll link to it um, in all of our show notes. James, thank you so much for being here. I learned a lot and really grateful for your expertise and for your preparation for this interview. You're very welcome. It was really good to be here. Thank you. We're going to see that it was better that we grew up together. Tell me you don't want to leave. Cause if change is what you need You can change right next to me When you're high, I'll take the lows You can ebb and I can flow We'll take it slow 
We go.